How's everybody doing out there? Can you hear me? Yeah. I'll start again. How's everybody doing? Good? You know, aren't you glad there's a roof in here because the rain forecast, which is it can rain anytime, anywhere, is not going to hit us this morning because we're in, inside. Just wanted to say that's, you know, I appreciate the roof. It's great to have you guys here for the second part of our movie series, Surge at the Movies. Uh, if Eclipse so far have eluded you, we are actually talking about the movie Darkest Hour today. Uh, movies, one of those uh, kind of history-based films that uh, Hollywood has produced with some degree of success lately, rather than a very broad look, sort of the epic sweep through generations in time, uh, they tend to bore down into a particular event. Uh, recent blockbusters such as this were like Lincoln back in 2012 with Daniel Day-Lewis, who won the, the Academy Award for Best Actor, uh, just on the whole issue of the vote on the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, then last year, Dunkirk uh, was about the evacuation of British troops who were being st uh, squeezed into beaches on France. Uh, in France, in fact, that situation uh, looms large in even today's little message on the darkest hour. Uh, and to set the time for you on the darkest hour, how many people, first of all, have seen the movie? Seen the movie? Some of you? Oh, this is great because I think the, we did a movie last year. Nobody had seen the movie. Great movie that no one, no one had seen. It was awesome. Uh, anyway, to set the time for you, the events occur in this movie all happen within a two-week span in November 1940. Most of you will remember that, right? I mean, you were there. No. <clears throat> it's a, you realize that's almost 80 years ago? 80 years ago. Whew. Anyway, what's going on is that uh, Hitler is being aggressive, and he's mopping up country after country. And we interrupt this. We interrupt this sermon for a public service announcement about how you can use your children to mop up around your house. Okay, now, back to the message. <clears throat> uh, Hitler then turns his attention to the West, and he is, in uh, the 10th of May of that year, poised to attack Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and France. And British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's very weak response to Hitler's uh, aggression has led to the collapse of his support, as you just saw on the video. And in a parliamentary democracy, that means the government has to be reformed. A new government has to come in. A new prime minister has to take over to lead it. And ultimately, as you see, uh, the lot is going to fall to Winston Churchill, the guy no one really wants, not even people in his own party. It's probably not exaggerating to suggest that the true story depicted in this film may well have altered the course of history, setting the stage for the world that you and I now occupy. It could have gone far differently, which Amazon Prime's show The Man in the High Castle kind of plays with, right? Uh, in The Darkest Hour, uh, Gary Oldman plays the role of Winston Churchill, and he won last year's uh, Oscar as Best Actor. The movie itself is uh, actually brilliant. I've watched it three or four times. It's filled with memorable scenes from start to finish, but uh, interestingly enough, or sadly enough, it lost the Oscar for Best Picture to a movie about a woman madly in love with an amphibian. You think I'm making this up? I, I'm not. In Hollywood, fish are, are people too. Okay. okay, enough of that. Okay, back to Darkest Hour. What I want to do today to kind of play with this is I want to use this film and a biblical account that is eerily similar. 
kind of like Miley Cyrus and the Beebs are eerily similar, to highlight that being the right person in the right place at the right time is simply not enough, unless it's accompanied by some faith and some courage to risk it all. God is not mentioned by name anywhere in this film, nor is he mentioned by name in the account from Scripture I'm going to talk about, but he's all over both. How do I know? A couple of verses to set the table for you. This out of Daniel chapter 2, referring to God. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And this from Job. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He, enlarge, he enlarges nations and he leads them away. Bottom line from those passages, God owns history. He tells us here that these great empires which have risen and fallen do so at his command, all according to his grand purposes. But he also commands history at the micro level as well. God tells us that he knew each one of you before you showed up. And he chose this specific time in history for you to appear. You and I too can be used by God to affect history, maybe to change history, maybe for one person, maybe for a family, maybe for a town, maybe for a business, maybe for a state, maybe for a nation, maybe for the world. So don't think this is just about kings and prime ministers and queens and nations. Each of you are the right person, in the right place, at exactly the right time. So here's the question. Will you have the faith and the courage to risk it all, to be the right person, in the right place, at exactly the right time? Or will your story be recorded as your failure to be? all that God wanted for you. We're going to watch it play out in the movies. This next clip, the king has summoned Churchill to ask him to form a new government and serve as prime minister. Church's wife here is bucking him up a little bit. You from excitement, I from terror. You've wanted this your entire adult life. No, since the nursery. What do the public want It's me? your own party to whom you'll have to prove yourself. No, I'm getting the job only because the ship is sinking. It's not a gift, it's revenge. Let them see your true qualities, your courage. My poor judgment. Your lack of vanity. Yeah, my iron will. Your sense of humour. Ho, ho, ho. Now go. Go? Be... Be what? Be yourself. Myself. Hmm. Which self should I be today? Hmm. One should have had power when a young man, when wits were sharp, sinews strong. Oh well, uh, lead on Macduff. When youth departs, may wisdom prove enough. <laughs> I love that line. This isn't a gift. 
This is revenge. Churchill knows that the deck is stacked against him. His own party doesn't really even want him, but they recognize he's the only person that could put a coalition government together that the opposition will support. So they're hoping to force him to negotiate a peace deal with Hitler, and they intend to maneuver things to ensure that he is forced out if he doesn't. Plus, we find out the king is not really that much of a supporter of Churchill either. So Churchill knows that he has inherited a total disaster. He does not want to negotiate. So he decides to keep the British public kind of in the dark about just how badly things are going in the war. And so at this point, no one, no one would blame you or me if we wondered why God would do this. Did God know what he was doing when he picks this guy, put in this position at this critical point in uh, history? Even Churchill seems to be wondering that same thing as well, right? His experience is weirdly common to an Old Testament heroine who also found herself thrust into a leadership position, seemingly out of nowhere. Her country, Israel, had been overrun by Babylon for disobedience to God, which subsequently is conquered by the Persians. You can see on the screen the massive reach of the Persian Empire, basically the known world at the time. Now, even though the Persian king Cyrus, who uh, conquered all all of this world, uh, uh, allowed uh, the nations that were under the Babylonian Empire to kind of go back to their homelands, not everybody did. And some of them stayed right where they were, occupying space in that part of the Roman Empire that was foreign to them when they were taken into captivity. One of those people who remained was named Esther. We don't know whether that was her choice or not. She was an orphan. Parents had died. We are told that she is taken in by a cousin named Mordecai, who essentially adopted her as his own daughter. So here they are in Persia, capital city, Susa, as Jews, did not make them particularly important did not make them particularly powerful or influential. Just pretty much your everyday common nobodies. Until, until the new king, King Xerxes at the time, drunk at a massive party that he threw, demands his queen, Queen Vashti, to come and parade around to be ogled at by all of his uh, drunk friends. And as oppressive as Jacobo de Salaio's uh, picture is, the actual event, I think, was much more massive and bigger than this. I mean, he had celebrated his, his own awesomeness for 180 days. That's six months straight. Then he throws this huge seven-day bash. Anyway, got to give the queen some credit. She said in so many words, no thanks. I am more than just a piece of meat. And when the king hears the report, he is enraged. What? My awesomeness has just been put in its place by this woman in front of everybody? And in his drunken stupor, he strips her of her title and banishes her. When he comes to, after the headache subsides, He realizes what a stupid mistake he's made. He regrets it. But Persian rules are that once you, as a king, make a command, it cannot be rescinded. It's forever. You can't take it back. So you sort of see God overseeing everything, right? And he's just created 
a job vacancy. And in the empire-wide search for a suitable replacement that follows, Esther wins what was probably the most difficult beauty pageant ever. The king is so smitten with her looks that he never even asks her where she's from. And she doesn't tell him. And like most secrets, the longer you keep them, the harder it is to come clean. But she knows how this king operates. She's seen it. One false move and her fate could be no better than her predecessor. It could be worse. But, good news, things start out pretty swimmingly. Mordecai, working near the city gate, overhears some people talking about a plot to assassinate the king. He gets word to now Queen Esther, who tells the king, and the plot is neutralized. You think God's not arranging things, putting the pieces in place, just like he wants? But that does not always mean that things are going to go well forever. In fact, both for Churchill and for Esther, things get worse, and way worse, and quickly. In the next clip, Churchill has established a war cabinet that includes people that he knows, people that he uh, likes, but also people that are not his, necessarily his friends. His idea is, right, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Here's the transpiration of what happens in the war cabinet. Our part, all our forces under Lord Gort, have withdrawn or are trying to withdraw to the French coast, to Dunkirk, where we cannot reach them. How many of our men are trapped? All of them. Our country's entire professional soldiery, and we can see no clear way to rescue them. General, are you telling me that we shall have lost the entire British army by the next few days? That's correct. The German force is superior in every regard and only 50 miles from the coast. They are pushing us into the sea. Well, the Germans must not reach the sea. Not, not before we evacuate our, our men. Nismay, what have you got for us? As it stands, I cannot see we have much hope of getting any of our forces out in time. Not a man. Well, we... We cannot be so uh, totally at their mercy. What's our next step? Anyone? Come on, speak! We still have a garrison at Calais, 25 miles to the west. Well, how many men do we have there? 4,000, more or less. <coughs> why, why didn't you say so? Yes. Then we... Uh, we have them go east, engage with the German columns, moving on Dunkirk. Buy us some time. Draw the, the Nazi focus away from Dunkirk whilst we execute a, a maritime evacuation of our forces. Is that uh, possible? It would mean a huge sacrifice. 4,000 young men to save 300,000. Under whose command is the uh, Calais garrison? Uh, Brigadier Nicholson. Very well. Uh. Tell Nicholson it is of the greatest importance to this island that, that his garrison draw the enemy's tanks and artillery and bombers away from Dunkirk. Invite their wrath and... Well, and to fight on, if needs be. If needs be, until the destruction of his command. 
It's suicide. Hmm. Pretty grim. In a matter of a couple of weeks, the Belgians, the Dutch armies have collapsed. Luxembourg's never heard from again. I don't know where they went. The French have all but surrendered. Yeah, the screen captures it all, the agony of defeat, right? And beyond this, the entire British army, 300,000, are at risk, trapped on these beaches in Dunkirk. Pressure grows immensely to negotiate with Hitler to save the army and try to prevent a British uh, invasion of Britain by the Germans, for which Britain is ill-equipped. His party figures if they can just get Churchill to declare formally that he basically would never negotiate, then they'd get enough backing to thrust him out. But, but Churchill doesn't fall for that trap. Rather than initiate negotiations, he opts to buy time with this gut-wrenching choice to sacrifice the 4,000-man unit sitting in Calais, try to draw the German fire to conjure up time for a way to get the troops off of the beach. Then he tries a long shot that happens right after this clip. He ends up talking to an Admiral Ramsey uh, and says, look, can we pull some, maybe a, a, a flotilla of maybe fishing ships and business ships that can go and cross the channel, kind of, you know, unnoticed, whatever, and, and get, the, get our guys. Uh, then he uh, picks up the phone and he calls President Roosevelt uh, and seeking some help. In fact, they had bought some fighters, they'd already paid for them, and he's saying, hey, could you deliver those at least? And in a conversation that frankly is just embarrassing for anyone who's an American, Churchill gets absolutely nothing, no support whatsoever. Roosevelt himself is hamstrung by the isolationists in America who have no interest in getting involved in that war that's way over there and doesn't involve us. Britain is on its own, utterly hopeless. It is the darkest hour. Ominous clouds are forming in Esther's world as well. There is a Hitler-esque character in her story by the name of Haman. He is promoted to second in command right behind King Xerxes. He is uh, going down the street one day and he gets royally miffed because he sees that Mordecai has refused to bow down to him as he passes. And interestingly, you're wondering what is going on here, he decides he's not only going to try to manufacture a way to get Mordecai killed, but he's going to kill every Jew that exists in the entire Persian Empire. That's a little extreme, don't you think? Is that a normal reaction from somebody? I'm going to kill you and everybody that knows you and everybody that looks like you, everybody that's for, I mean, that's crazy. You wonder, what is going on? Well, there's, there's a backstory. We find out that Haman himself isn't really Persian. He's actually called Haman the Agag Agag Agagite, not because he's thrown up a lot. He's not a rock like anthracite, right? It, it turns out he is a descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the group of people called the Amalekites. What's the Amalekite story? When God brought Israel out of Egypt from slavery and he had him wandering in the wilderness, the Amalekites weren't too happy about that. So what they would do is they would, uh, they would mount these raids and just come in and just slaughter a bunch of Israelites wandering in the, in the wilderness. These were former slaves, right? They weren't, they weren't warriors. They were just people. 
and they just get killing them off as best, as best they could. And uh, Haman apparently forgot about that aspect of the story. What he didn't forget was this part, that when Israel got its first king named Saul, one of the first things God told Saul to do is go out there and wipe out the Amalekites for all of the stuff they did and the stuff they were and just wipe them out completely, kill everything. Don't take anything, leave their stuff there, just wipe them out. Saul didn't do that. He brought back King Agag and they were having a fine, fine time, right? Uh, by the way, the prophet Samuel ended up calling Saul on it. Saul lost his reign because of this disobedience. And then Samuel, it's a great story, takes out his sword and hacks Agag into pieces. But, but that'd be a great movie. Wait, anyway, so anyway, bottom line is Haman has got it out for the Jews, looking for an excuse. And his hatred leads him to spin a yarn to the king about how these people are sowing dissension. There's a group of people sowing dissension all over the empire. They're not following our rules. They have different laws. They're doing different things than we are. They, they're, they're, it's going to cause trouble for you. You need, you need to eliminate them. And, and the king, being, being brilliant, is, goes, up, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Not only is he pretty impetuous, he's not the brightest bulb on the uh, store, right? Okay, so Haman, Haman is allowed to pick a specific date and position all of his guys in the locations, everywhere there's Jews in the entire empire, and on this specific date, they're going to give the alarm, and these people are going to rise up and just kill all the Jews everywhere and take all their stuff. Well, when a lot of people know about things, it's hard to keep a secret, right? And so somehow word gets out. And Mordecai, back in the capital, hears about this plot. He spreads words to all of the Jews in the empire. He says, look, here's what's coming for us. And the king has approved it. We don't, we don't, know, we don't know what. And he, he can't go back on his word. We don't know what's going to happen. It's really the darkest hour. So everybody, everybody get ready. And here's the deal. If Haman succeeds in this plot, guess what? Hitler won't have any Jews to kill in 1940. There won't be any. So what do you do when it's hopeless? When you're in your darkest hour? This next clip is just over five minutes long. See if you can spot some answers to that question. There's someone to see you. You have a visitor. You have the full weight of the world on your shoulders. I... No, I, I know, I know. But these inner battles have actually trained you for this very moment. You are strong because you are imperfect. You are wise because you have doubts. Now, shall I let him in? Uh, who? The king. Which king? Our king. Well, if it isn't him, it's a marvellous impersonation. Mr. Churchill, I hope you can forgive the late hour, but your wife thought tonight would be a good time. Shall we sit? Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, please. Um. Uh, uh, some, uh, something to drink, perhaps. 
I received a visit from Viscount Halifax. It appears that the prospect of a peace deal has increased dramatically. Uh, the war cabinet are drafting a letter to Mussolini asking him to broker talks with Herr Hitler. Then Halifax was correct. I, I should like to know your mind. It would be helpful to know yours first. Uh, I should like to know it myself. Nations <clears throat> which go down fighting rise again and those that surrender tamely are finished. Belgium? Collapsed. Norway? Holland. France, any other? And the mood of Parliament? Fear, panic. And you? Are you not afraid? I am most terribly. Support in the war cabinet for the campaign of resistance has collapsed. Later today, I, I will address the House accordingly. You have my support. Your Majesty. You have my support. I confess, I had some reservations about you at first, but while some in this country dreaded your appointment, none, none dreaded it like Adolf Hitler. Whomever can strike fear into that brute heart is worthy of all of our trust. We shall work together. You shall have my support at any hour. Beat the buggers. I will go to Parliament, but without supporting my own party, I must sue for peace. You once gave me some advice. Perhaps I can, I can give you some. Go to the people. Let them instruct you. Quite silently. They usually do. But tell them the truth, unvarnished. If invasion is imminent, if our troops in France are lost, they must be prepared. On certain matters, I, I have very few people with whom I can talk, frankly. Perhaps now we have each other. And I no longer scare you. A little. But I can cope. <laughs> In his darkest hour, Churchill gets some encouragement from his wife. 
whom he knew loved him. God also brought this amazing change in the king's heart towards Churchill and led him to pay a visit to Churchill late at night. He's also encouraged by a phone call with Admiral Ramsey to find out there's incredible progress being made in this flotilla to get across the channel to rescue the army. He also takes the king's advice. En route to Parliament, he actually gets out of his ride and goes into the underground, London subway system. There he actually talks to people in a subway car and he tells them the truth about what's really going on in the war, how desperate things are, uh, the, 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 the threat that the country faces, and how they're really not really prepared for it. And he seeks their reaction to whether we should negotiate or fight on until the end. And their, their response is priceless. It's, it's resounding and it's unanimous. We want to fight to the death to protect our land. It's still a very dark time for the country. But Churchill arrives in Parliament revived. He goes into action, really, against all odds. He speaks to his own cabinet, and amazingly, they come fully around him. And instead of doing what he had planned, which was to announce a plan to negotiate, he rallies the full Parliament, even his own party, to fight on to the end, to defend their land, even if it meant that at the end of the day, they all lay on the ground in their own blood. Now that's courage. Well, we know what happened, right? But when Churchill walked out of that room after that speech, he had no idea what would really transpire. Would Hitler, in fact, run rampant over his country just like it had every other country it faced? Didn't matter. They had chosen the path of resisting the tyrant. And if he perished, he perished. See if you don't see some of these same things in Esther. She looks out of her window and sees Mordecai in mourning clothes in the city gate. And she seeks word to find out what it is that's going on with him. And she finds out what is up with Haman and the threat to their people. She meets with Mordecai and he tells her, look, there's only one option I see for a, a possibility that we might be spared. You need to go, Esther, into the king and get him to appeal this decision. Tell him what's up. And at that point, it's, whoa, whoa hold on there, just a second there, Mordecai. <laughs> this could mean certain death, dude, because Persian law forbids anyone from just going into the king's throne room. You've got to be invited to get in that room. And if anybody goes into that room without permission, they are summarily executed unless the king raises his golden scepter as a way of approving it. So Esther wants absolutely nothing to do with this. She totally resists until Mordecai kind of reminds her, maybe there's something, maybe there's someone bigger than you behind the scenes. Maybe there's somebody bigger than you setting the table. He tells her that perhaps this is the very reason that you were made queen. Maybe your position as queen was made for such a time as this right here. And something clicked. And all of a sudden, she becomes a Wonder Woman. <laughs> she becomes courageous. She tells Mordecai, 
you go and tell all of the Jews in the entire capital to fast for the next three days. Why? Why fast? Who are you appealing to? Let's all get hungry and get weaker. Then we'll, no, you're appealing to God for his assistance and his power. And she declares this. After three days of everybody fasting, here's what's going to happen. I am going to go to the king, even though it's against the law. He hasn't called for me in 30 days. You know what she said? It should sound familiar. I'll go in there, I'll sip in that room, and if I perish, I perish. Can you imagine her walking into that room? Opening the door, knowing that every breath that she's taking could be her last. Now that's courage, and that's trust, that somebody's got her back. And God amazingly moved. The king, it turns out, was delighted to see her. Nothing dramatic happens in that particular event other than the fact that she lives, which is a cool thing if you're Esther. She simply invites the king and Haman to a dinner. They had a dinner. They had such a good time. She invites them to another dinner. Apparently the time wasn't right, something, whatever. And it's at that meal that the king is so pleased with her that he basically says, I think you're the greatest thing in the world. How about if you ask me anything you want, even half of my kingdom, it's yours. And she goes, oh, that's, that's so sweet, really. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly. But there is a little something that maybe I might enjoy. If, if you could possibly see your way clear not to slaughter me and all my people, that would be really cool. I mean, if we were just going to be rounded up and sold into slavery, I wouldn't have even brought it to your attention. I mean, I know you're busy, you got stuff to do, and I wouldn't want to, we'd be alive and we'd be okay. I mean, yeah, you'd miss me because I'm going to be gone, I'd be away, but they're going to kill us. So maybe it'd be really cool if you could figure out a way to save us. And the king has no idea what's up. So he demands to know, who, is, who, is, who could this possibly be that's threatening the life of my, of my queen? And, and her people. Because he didn't, know who his, he didn't even know who her people are. And Esther just looked at Haman. Sitting on the couch over there, minding his business, full of himself because he thinks he's in with a king. She's, oh, a foe and enemy. This wicked Haman. You know his plan. He's got a plan to kill all the Jews in the empire. And for the first time, she's acknowledging that she's a Jew. The king is enraged because he feels like he's been tricked by Haman into killing not only his queen, but all of her people. And let's just say that Haman goes bye-bye forthwith. He's hung on the same gallows that he built to hang Mordecai. But you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How does this save all the Jews? Because the king put out a decree. And once you put out a decree that all the Jews should be killed, you can't rescind that decree. So how do they get saved? Clever. King knows he can't rescind the order. So he puts out another order. And he sends the word to the entire empire, Jews and otherwise. Okay, I know in this day, here's what's going to happen. They're going to try to kill you guys. So you arm yourselves, and I want you to defend yourselves. And all of a sudden, the people who are going to kill all the Jews become very afraid because it looks like the king is now backing the Jews, and so they become very timid. Well, long story short, there's a massive slaughter on the day that genocide is supposed to happen, but the people who die are all the people who are going to attack the Jews. Amazing rescue. Here's some final thoughts for us. You're going to face tough times, Christian, in this world. Paul said this, 
He said, look, there were times I faced such dark times I was certain I was going to die. Paul told his followers, they were followers of Christ. You're going to have trouble in this life. Someone's going to die. Your spouse is going to leave. You're going to be lonely. You're going to lose your job. You're going to get sick. Your kids are going to misbehave. All kinds of things could cause dark hours. In those times, what do you, what do you listen to? What do you do? I mean, if you're a Christian, do you believe that God is for you and not against you? Do you really believe that he loves you? That no matter what happens, as a child of God, through your faith in Christ, you're going to be okay? That there's not a thing that any human being can do to you that will alter the trajectory of your eternal existence? Are you praying? Can you, can you put words to your emotions, the pain that you're feeling, and lay it at his feet, trusting that he actually cares? Are you listening? Are you letting God consult with you? Knowing God's word is not a dry, mindless activity. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit in dark times can bring to your memory passages of scripture that you have read and meditated on and studied at just the right time to help instruct you. Yeah, seek the counsel of others. Churchill did. Be open to advice. But some people are going to give you advice to take the easy route when God wants you to stand firm in the face of overwhelming odds. Your own relationship with God needs to be deep enough that you are able to discern the good advice from the shoddy advice. And some of you might be thinking this. This really isn't that relevant to me, Dwayne. I'm never going to be the prime minister. Never going to be the queen. Never going to be the king. So think about this. Go back where we started. Think about the fact that God formed you in your innermost parts when you were still in utero. That he knew you before you arrived. Think about with all of human history, past, present, and future, that he could have used, he brought you into this world now. Imagine that you are, in fact, the right person at the right time and in the right place. That you being here right now is not an accident. What if you, Christian, woke up every morning expecting that God was up to something that he might want you to be a part of? even if being a part of it takes you to a darkest hour, even if it requires a faith in him that makes no sense to the world around you? What if God's plan is to use you as an instrument to alter history or to make history? Would you step out even if you were terrified? Would you be faithful? Would you be courageous? Are there not people around you, Christian, who do not know Jesus Christ? Are you keeping that little secret to yourself? Husbands, do you not have wives? Are you not to lead it, that family, in such a way as that you're risking it all for them, dying to yourself so they can be all that God wants them to be? Parents, I give you your children. CEOs, I give you your employees. Shoppers, I give you the people behind the counter waiting on you. You should walk into this world expecting God to use you. It may start small, but I guarantee you, if you prove faithful, you will be amazed at what can happen.
sometimes a dark time, sometimes a hard time, is simply God getting ready to use you for something you would never imagine yourself capable of. So when things get dark, make sure you head to the light. His name is Jesus. Each of you is the right person, in the right place, at exactly the right time. But will you have the faith and courage to risk it all, to actually be the right person, in the right place, at exactly the right time? Let's pray.